Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. <clears throat> and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping work of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord your God of your fathers has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with your, all your soul, and with all of your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorsteps of your house, and on your gates. Micah 4, 1-5 It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us in his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the people will walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Colossians 3, verse 16. 
Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Love that we get to hear multiple generations reading for us from God's Word. Well, it's uh, that time of year again where it's common to make New Year's resolutions. And if you uh, have done this before, or you've talked to other people who make New Year's resolutions, they commonly involve things like getting into better shape or maybe being more organized, learning a new skill or hobby, or spending our money differently. Whatever resolutions uh, any of you might be considering, I just wanted to note that, that the whole idea of New Year's resolutions does uh, draw into clarity or reflect something about how we view personal growth, what it means to grow as a person. And as I thought about that, it made me wonder what corporate New Year's resolutions might look like. As a community of Jesus followers here at Providence Church, what might we together as a body resolve to do in 2022? What opportunities are before us in the next year as a body that we should take advantage of, that we shouldn't miss out on? Now, dozens of ideas might come to our minds. Uh, we could share those ideas and probably go on for, for a long time. But of course, the central question is whether our ideas are God's ideas. If we want to see our opportunities rightly, well, we need to wrestle with understanding God's intentions and designs for us on planet Earth at this point in history. We have to understand what God is doing on the Earth, or as one author asked, what on Earth is God doing? So when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is on heaven, well, what exactly are we asking for? If God were to answer that prayer here at Providence Church in 2022, what might we expect to see? How do we know if he's answering it? What on earth is God doing? How do we as a church devote ourselves to that so that we rightly take the opportunities that are before us this year and every year. Now, I would guess if, um, if I went around to each of you and, and just asked you, well, what's God doing on the earth? Um, there might be some, some common answers. There might also be some confusion. I think largely among Christians, there's this idea that God's will is, for the most part, mysterious or hidden, perhaps, uh, it's difficult or maybe even arrogant for, for someone to stand up and say, well, I know what God is doing on the earth. But Matthew sixteen eighteen, in Matthew 8, 16, 18, Jesus plainly tells us exactly what he is doing on the earth. He is building his church. And as we read forward from the Gospels into Acts and then into the rest of the New Testament, that's exactly what we see borne out. Jesus is building his church on the earth. 
And we could read on into church history, the early church fathers in 2,000 years through the Middle Ages and the Reformation and into the modern era. And again ask, well, what is God doing on the earth? And we'd see that the plan has not changed. He is still building his church. We see this idea clearly from our text in Ephesians 4. Everything in that text uh, that the Apostle Paul is writing to this uh, church in Ephesus culminates in verse 16, which ends by saying that each part of the church body, when it's working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds. It builds itself up in love. And so that's what God is up to. It's what the resurrected Christ is doing. He is saving souls, building churches, and he's specifically building those churches into these growing organisms of his love in the world. They build themselves up in love. And brothers and sisters, I think that's the biggest opportunity we have as a body in 2022 is to see God build to a greater degree his church right here. That that we could get caught up in that cycle of the church continuing to build itself up in love here in the South Hills of Pittsburgh. And what I find personally so compelling about Ephesians 4 is that not only tells us what in the world God is up to, that he's building growing churches, but it, it also lays out very succinctly his plan, God's plan for how that growth will occur. And these verses present us with, with three things, at least. They present us with God's strategy for building churches. They present us with God's purpose in building churches in this way. And then they even provide us with God's methods for building these growing, dynamic, spiritually vibrant churches. And so that's what I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at from Ephesians chapter 4. What is God's strategy for building his church? What is God's purpose in building his church in that way? And what is God's day-to-day method for building a growing, vibrant church here at Providence Church um, in the South Hills of Pittsburgh? So let's just take those one by one. First, God's strategy for building his church. Now, I think as we, as we work through this text, it's really going to help you to see the words on the page and see how they relate to one another. So if you've closed up your Bibles, I just invite you to open them again uh, to Ephesians chapter 4. As we look at verses 11 and 12, we see a very straightforward strategy for how God intends to build healthy, growing churches. It's going to involve three different people or groups of people doing three different things. And so look again with me at verses 11 and 12. Paul writes, And he, and the he there is Jesus Christ. If you were to read up to the preceding verses, you would see that he's talking about Jesus Christ. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers. Those words shepherds and teachers, it it can be read as a a compound word, like dog house. Uh, It's two words that are put together, the shepherd teachers. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers to equip the saints 
for the work of ministry. And, and here we find that word again, for building. See that? For building up the body of Christ, which of course is the church. And so let's just recognize those three groups of people and the role that they play. God's strategy for building churches begins with Jesus Christ. It is Jesus' life and death and resurrection that purchased for his church all the rich gifts that we receive. Gifts like forgiveness of all of our sins, past, present, future. Gifts like union with himself that we are now in Christ. Gifts like adoption as God's sons and daughters. All of these would be impossible without the work of Jesus Christ for you and for me. And yet this verse in particular highlights another gift that Jesus purchased and then gave to his church. He gave something specific to jumpstart and fuel the building of his church after his departure and down through the ages. And the gift that Jesus gave was a group of people. Jesus gave first apostles to his church. And these people wrote scripture. They steered the early stages of the church as it began to develop. And then Jesus gave prophets to the church, which I take to mean less maybe Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and the rest, and more so um, those with the New Testament gift of prophecy. And so, for instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 24 and 25 says that prophecy, when practiced in the church, it reveals the secrets of the heart. And when, when people come into the church setting, they, they, their, their hearts are disclosed, they're convicted, and that is evidence that God really is among his church. And so Jesus gave these people, the prophets, to his church. Third, Jesus gave evangelists to the church. And I think as we read the book of Acts, what, what Paul probably has in mind by the word evangelist are those who devote themselves, yes, to the spreading of the gospel, just like all Christians are called to do. But the evangelists do it perhaps in different parts of the world. They go out from the church to unreached people groups to proclaim the gospel for the first time, to, to see first converts and churches built. And so in our modern day, you might think more about missionaries or church planters. Those are the evangelists. They're on the tip of the spear for the spreading of the gospel. And fourthly, Jesus gave shepherd teachers to the church. Shepherd, the, the Greek word for shepherd, is where we get our word for pastor. And so these people are um, a church's elders. They're the people who teach and spiritually guide individual local churches. And so Jesus Christ gave all of these people to the church, says verse 12, to, quote, equip the saints. Now, now saints, we're, we're not talking about a Roman Catholic view of the word saints. The, we're talking about a New Testament uh, meaning of the word saint, which just means Christian, believer, born-again individual. So these, this group of people, the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers are given to the church to equip the saints 
for the work of the ministry. And right away, Paul is going to tell us what that ministry of the saints accomplishes. Because he goes on and says, for building up the body of Christ. And so you see the three people or groups of people who are involved. First, Christ comes, dies, is resurrected, and as he uh, leaves planet Earth, he gives his church the second group of people, the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers, who are gifts to the church, who lead the church, equip the church, and, and what the result of that is that the members of the church are equipped to do their ministry, and it's their ministry that then builds up the church. Do you see how that, that chain of events, that's, that's God's strategy for building the church. He didn't send one person to build a church. Providence Church does not exist because one person landed here and did a good job. No, Providence Church exists because there are members, there are you who have a ministry to do, and when you do your ministry, our church is built up. That's God's strategy. That's how God intends to build his church, whether here or anywhere else. Now, one implication of God's church growth strategy that I hope is just um, very apparent is that everyone is involved. From Jesus Christ to church leaders down to the newest member of a body, the newest convert, the newest believer, this strategy includes everyone, and that means it includes you, brother or sister. If you are someone saved by the blood of Christ, if you are trusting in him fully as your Lord and Savior, you are a part of God's plan to build his church. And so God doesn't leave any room for anyone on, to sit on the sidelines. No one is merely a consumer. Everyone is called to an active role in building local churches, or every Christian, more accurately said. Every Christian is called to an active role in building local churches. And so the, the future, the growth of Providence Church, it, it does not sit squarely on Pastor Rob's shoulders. It does not sit squarely on the shoulders of the elders. We have a role but it's not just the leaders or the deacons or those who serve on a ministry team who are part of building the church. No, it's, it's a part of every member. God has a job for you, brother or sister, to do in building a spiritually vibrant, growing church. You're a part of the strategy. Now, I personally think that's exciting. Well, when we understand the strategy from a high, from kind of a 10,000 foot view, the text moves on to describe in more detail God's purpose for this strategy. Why does God intend to do this? Why, why did God send Jesus, who then gave church leaders, who then equipped the members, and it's the members who build the church? Why does he do it that way? What's, what's his purpose in doing it that way? You see, God could have a purpose in building a church that's 
All about the buildings, right? That's how many in, in our society view a church. They see the building and they say, oh, there's a church. Or God could have, I suppose, thought about church growth like many popular books on church growth. Uh, think about it where it's all about getting people in the door, getting butts in seats. That's what, that's how you grow a church. Do something that's fun or impressive. Put on a show and you'll grow a church. But God's not doing that either. And so God's purpose in building the church brings up this question of, well, what exactly is he building? What kind of church does God intend to build? And this passage in Ephesians 4, it answers that question both negatively, what God is not building or what he's building away from, and positively, what he is building positively or what he's building toward. And so I want to look at the negative answer first, and then we'll move on to the positive. So what is God's purpose in building his church? Look at verse 14. The saints are equipped to build up the church. So God is building his church, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So why is God doing it this way? What does he not want to happen? That's, that's the negative answer. Well, he does not want his church to be childish in our faith. He doesn't want us to be immature or superficial in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, in our, in our relationship with him, in our love for him. He doesn't want us to be tossed to and fro by waves and wind of doctrine. And I, I trust that you see this. In, in our nation, so many Christians are easily disoriented, confused, distracted by new ideas that cut across the clear biblical teaching of sound doctrine. It does not take much to confuse us as American Christians, does it? Many of these winds and waves come from inside the church itself. We can look at some of the best-selling titles in Christian bookstores and we'll see winds and waves of doctrine that cut against clear biblical teaching. God also doesn't want us to be captivated by what Paul calls human cunning, which I think is just an outlook on life and an outlook on the world that's, that's more shaped by worldly thinking than it is the word of God. And then that third phrase, he, he doesn't want us to be a toss to and fro by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Well, brothers and sisters, I ask you, where do we find the words deceitful and crafty together in the Bible? These are shadows of the garden itself. The serpent was the craftiest of all the creatures, and he deceived our greatest grandparents. God does not want his church to be deceived just like the rest of humanity by that ancient serpent, by the devil. God wants his church protected from winds and waves of doctrine. He wants his church protected by human cunning and ideas. And he wants his church protected from the demonic schemes that have deceived people for generations. 
Now, when I think about these negative categories in verse 14, it makes me think of the current deconstruction phenomenon. Have you come across any Christians who have said that they are deconstructing their faith? Deconstructionism is a, is a more modern idea that invites Christians and, and probably people from other faiths too, although it seems to be very popular in the American church right now, it invites Christians to dissect their faith primarily with an eye to find fault with the faith that they've been taught. And so it might be finding fault in Christianity's claims about sex and gender. Or it might be to find fault in Christianity's claims about hell and judgment. Or it might be to find fault in Christianity due to some grievous church hurt that someone has experienced in the body itself. Perhaps you've read about people deconstructing their faith either on social media or in the news, or or maybe you know someone personally who has gone through this process. And sadly, what often results is that people who once claim Christ end up leaving him altogether. Not all the time, but often. I think as we read verse 14, this is exactly the sort of thing that God's strategy for building churches is meant to prevent. A church that's properly built is God's first defense against winds and waves of doctrine. It's his defense against human cunning and Satan's crafty, deceitful schemes that will unwind our faith. So that's the, that's the negative description of God's purpose in building his church in this way. But our passage also gives us a positive description of what God is actually building in his church. What kind of church is it? Look at verse 13, and then we'll jump down to the second half of 15. Verse 13 says that the saints are to build up the church until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then jump down to the second half of 15 where that same idea is just restated in a shorter form. He says, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And so brothers and sisters, God's purpose in building his church in In this way, by sending Christ, by giving church leaders, by equipping members to build up the church, his his purpose in doing that is to build communities of people who know Christ deeply, richly, are unified around nothing but Jesus Christ. We grow up into him by understanding who we are in him, who he's made us. How we are united to him, filled by him through his spirit. What it means to walk in his ways. You see, the church is to be a group of people who, when we gather, we have Christ's heart. We we love Christ's commands. We prize Christ above everything else. 
He is our all. He is the one we long for. He is the great end of life. That is the kind of church that God is building. That's His purpose for this church-building strategy, according to Ephesians 4. And so, in other words, no, the church is not a building, and the church is not a show. It's not something we come into, we sit through and evaluate whether we liked it or not. God's church is a group of people who look increasingly, day after day, month after month, year after year, less like the world and more like their Savior. And so from God's perspective, building the church happens when people, people, flesh and blood people, are built up in Christ. And so... That may or may not mean on a given Sunday that more bodies are coming through the doors. I mean, in the long term, it should mean that because a mature body of believers will proclaim the gospel and God has promised that as the gospel goes out, he will work and save souls. And so in the long term, we should expect numerical growth. But the New Testament is filled, isn't it? It's filled with stories of how small bands of Jesus followers can have a massive impact on their world because of their devotion to their Lord. That's the kind of church that God is building. And so if we see God's strategy for church building, Christ, church leaders, members who build up the church, That's his strategy, and his purpose is to build a kind of church that loves and is shaped by Jesus Christ and wholly devoted to him. Well, then, the question left on the table, right, is, goodness, how do we get there? Because if if you brothers and sisters are like me, then, then yes, you love Jesus. You want to follow him passionately. And yet, if we look at our lives... Don't we see areas of compromise, our own half-heartedness at times, moments where we are satisfied with the world's good and comfort more than we are with Christ? And we read, don't we, about some of the saints who have gone before and they've left everything. They've left their homelands. They've suffered in great ways with no regrets because of their love and zeal for their Lord. We read their stories and we want to be like them. And yet, maybe you've said this or maybe you've heard others say that. We, we think like, I don't know that I could do that. Or, or maybe, given the circumstances, I don't know that I would do that. So how do we get there? Now, I don't see in the Bible any reason to expect that God is doing less in his church today than he did in the book of Acts. And so this weekly gathering of about 30 or 40 Christians in Castle Shannon could just as easily be 30 or 40 people in Philippi 
30 or 40 people in Colossae, 30 or 40 people in Galatia or Jerusalem. And their faith was so vibrant. What do we do? What should we be committed to day after day in the coming year to be like that? What are God's day in and day out methods for building his church here at Providence Church or any other gospel-believing church? Well, we already saw up in verse 12 that the church is fundamentally built up by its members, the, the saints or the believers who make up a local church. And when the saints do their ministry, the body of Christ is built. And so it's, it's really important that we see that in verse 12. Uh, that's an unpopular idea, I think, in our day and age. I think many in our day and age would look at our church and say, well, Pastor Rob builds up the church. Or your pastors build up the church. And in a way that might be true, but in the broad sense, Ephesians is telling us, no, that's not true. It's saying, Pastor Rob can't do what all of us can do. The elders can't do what all of us can do. And even the the elders and the senior pastor are first members of the church. And so the calling of member is universal no matter what role you serve in here. And so, what is it that the body does that only the senior pastor or only the elders cannot do by themselves? What is it that is this ministry that is given to all of you, all of us, that then will build God's church here at Providence Church? Look down at verses 15 and 16. This is coming off of verse 14. Verse 14 said, we're not to be tossed around by the waves and wind of doctrine. We're not to be caught up in human cunning or crafty schemes. Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Did you catch God's means for church growth there at the beginning? Speaking truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Christ. Those are God's means. Speaking the truth in love. If you wanted a job description for being a faithful church member, here it is summarized in a few words by the Apostle Paul. Speaking the truth in love. Now, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I do want you to see the connection between the saint's ministry in verse 12 and speaking the truth in love in verse 15 because they're they're the same thing, I think, but I want you to see it. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see it here in the text. I think the clearest evidence is to follow the result of these two things. So do you remember that we we said up in verse 12, 
It was the ministry of the saints that builds up the church. It's the saints, when they do their ministry, the church is built. Now we come down to verse 15 and we get to this idea of speaking the truth in love. Well, well, how are we to know, how are we to think that that is the ministry of the saints? What, why, Nate, are you so strong in, in making that correlation that that's what the saints are supposed to do? And it's because if we keep reading, what does that accomplish? It accomplishes the very same end. Did you see that? Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way and to him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. Now, now what is that? Probably speaking the truth in love. That's what he just said. When every part is working properly, makes the body grow. And here it is again, so that it builds itself up in love. So I just think that the building in verse 12 by the ministry of the saints is the same building in verse 16, which is coming from speaking the truth in love to one another as a church body, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Do you see that? I I really want you to see that in the text. If we want a vibrant, flourishing New Testament church here, if we want to come closer and closer and closer to that target, what we must commit to, brothers and sisters, is to speak the truth in love with one another. Let's pull that apart just briefly. Speaking. We must use our mouths to communicate something. I, I trust that every one of you know what it means to speak. We put words together to say something from one person to another. And so our ministry, our collective ministry as members, as believers, is a primarily speaking ministry. And that should not surprise us when we look back at that strategy up in verse 12. What did Christ do for most of his years of ministry? He taught And when he gave the the apostles, what did they do? They witnessed to his resurrection. And the evangelists proclaimed the gospel. The, The shepherd teachers used their mouths to teach the church. The prophets are a speaking ministry. And so we, we, just like them, are, are given a ministry that is a speaking ministry. What are we to speak? Well, we are to speak the truth. Now, I I think this is probably the most commonly misunderstood phrase of this section of Scripture. Uh, Perhaps you've been around Christians who think that uh, speaking the truth in love means telling you all the bad stuff that you do in hope that you'll just finally get your act together. They might say, well, no, I'm not being hard on you, brother or sister. I'm just trying to speak the truth in love. So I want you to hear this. Um, I, I don't think tough love is precluded from the Bible. I think God does it at times. I think we need to do it at times. I just think if you want to find it in the Bible, turn more to the prophets, not to Ephesians chapter 4. That's not what the Apostle Paul has in mind here. He doesn't have tough love in mind. What I think he has in mind 
we discover if we continue reading his own words. If you still have your Bible open and just scan down, continuing out of the passage that we read, you'll find that Paul goes on to talk about the importance of personal holiness in the church, about putting off the old self, putting on the new self, and what he believes should motivate the church to personal holiness isn't primarily tough love, but if you look down at verse 21, it's hearing about Jesus, being taught about Jesus. And he says this, as the truth, there's the key word, as the truth is in Jesus. And so what's on Paul's mind when he tells a church, look, your, your purpose, God's means to build yourself up is speaking the truth in love. But what he probably has in mind is speaking about Jesus to one another because he just is going to say the truth is in Jesus. We're not primarily sin police. We're primarily Christ proclaimers. We're primarily means to one another to hold up Jesus and say, look at him, look at him. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he marvelous? The truth that we are all charged to speak about with one another, the ministry that we are entrusted with to build God's church is to speak of Jesus to one another. It's simple. I mean, it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. And yet, how often, I mean, as I think about this, I I just flash back to how easy it is after a worship service or in a meal with some of you to just talk about so many other frivolous things. How easy it is to talk about weather or sports or recent news when our calling our purpose, the means that God has assigned to us for one another's building up is to speak about our Lord, our Savior, who gave himself for us. That we would not prevent any one of us from forgetting his love. So we are to speak the truth in love. Now, speaking the truth in love is like a three-legged stool. If you try to only use two legs, you'll fall on your face. And so love is not an optional ingredient in God's methods for building his church. If we try to speak to one another, even if we try to speak truthfully, but without love for one another, our fellowship will fall flat. We will not be built up. Love is necessary. And so as you look around this room at the people that you are called to speak the truth in love to, and if you recognize, I don't know, I don't know that I have as much love for that person as I think I should. I might not have dislike for them, but do I really love them? Would I, would I put their needs before my own? Would I be more concerned about them than I am about myself? 
I mean, I, I think I think a lot of our ministry together, the, the success of our ministry, hangs on how much do we actually love one another. And this love, we can't manufacture it or fabricate it. It comes from God. And so, brothers and sisters, I would just encourage us, if you're not regularly praying for more love for your brothers and sisters in this church, I would go ahead and start doing that. Prayer is a wonderful way to be motivated to love someone. You can um, pray for someone after our service here today. You can take one of our church directories and and in your uh, daily devotionals, take three or four names and pray for those individuals. And I think, odds are, what you'll find is your heart will naturally gravitate toward those people in love as you pray for them. It's a, it's a wonderful kind of relationship that God has given us between our prayer life and those we love. And so, as we speak the truth in love, let us be um, recognizing the importance of loving one another. We'll be better over time at speaking to one another about Jesus, not because we we think we have to, or this is just the box I have to check when I see this person, uh, but because we really want to, because we really want to see that person build up. We really want to see them experience the presence and nearness and goodness of God. That's love. Now, I want to spend just just a moment as we conclude in, in really drawing us to a close with the thought that this idea of speaking the truth in love really is simple at the end of the day. It doesn't have to be complicated. And so I want to give you just a few brainstorm ideas for what could this look like. I'm not giving an exhaustive list by any stretch. You all will have uh, many more ideas than I can put to this. But in order to embrace this type of ministry that the Lord has for us all to do, you don't need to graduate from a series of classes. You don't need a Ph.D., all you, have to be, all you have to do is be willing to speak the truth about Jesus in love with one another. And so in just a few moments, we're going to sing and then we'll conclude our service. And it could be as easy as asking questions like this to one another. What is it about Jesus that has stood out to you recently? J- just tell me something that you've been taken with about him. Why do you love him this week? What what has stood out as magnificent about him? Or you could ask someone, what do you think God is teaching you recently? What is he bringing to your attention? Either something to do that you're not doing or something that you're not not doing that you should start doing. Or if you don't want to ask someone about their spiritual experience, you can start with your own. You you could go up to them and just say, can I share what I read about the Lord the other day? It really encouraged me. I think it might encourage you. Can can we just spend a few moments? Can I show you? You can open up your Bible together. Like This isn't complicated, right, folks? Any Christian can do this. You can, any Sunday morning, approach another brother or sister and and say, do you, do you know what stood out in the sermon to me this morning? Just, just something that caught my attention. I felt like God was highlighting, and you tell them, and you ask them, did anything stand out for you? It could be approaching our devotional times with other brothers and sisters, specifically on our mind. The thought struck me 
that, that I used to go to my Bible thinking, oh, I need to fill my spiritual tank for the day. This is me time. This is all about me, which, which I think to a degree is true. We, we go to the Lord to be refreshed by him. But so often God uses what refreshes us to refresh others. And that's exactly how this works. And then as we do life together, there's just all kinds of opportunities to bring our day-in and day-out life conversations around to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so you're, you're talking to a brother or sister and you realize this person is anxious or worried about something. Maybe it's even low level, but you can sense their anxiety or their hesitation. Well, you can remind them and pray with them that, that Jesus is their steadfast anchor for the soul. He can be trusted through thick and thin. He will come through for them. Or if someone has suffered loss, yes, we grieve with them. But we can recount how Jesus said in Mark 10, 30 that nothing we give up, whether brother, mother, houses, lands, goes unnoticed by our Father. And our God is, by his very nature, not a taker. He's a giver. He's rich in generosity. And so this list, the opportunities, just go on and on. You don't need a once-in-a-lifetime moment. These are just daily opportunities we'll have in 2022 to be about building God's church together. And can you imagine if this becomes more true about us, what it would mean for a disheartened brother or sister to come into our gatherings? When no matter who they might talk to, no matter who they might come up against, what they're going to hear is encouragement about the Savior that they trusted. Can you imagine that just being, you know, they don't have to sit through a sermon. Like, sure, we, we want every sermon to proclaim the gospel. We want every sermon to hold up the magnificence of Jesus Christ. But how much more glorious is it when every conversation they have points in some way to the majesty and glory of Jesus Christ, to their reason to hope and bank in him? Can you imagine what happens when an unbeliever comes into our gatherings? And we don't just have to hope, mm, I hope the preacher has a good gospel-centered message for this person today. Because we know as they talk to three or four or a half dozen members among us, what they're going to hear is gospel. Not forcibly preached to them per se, but just because that's what naturally comes out of us. Because we are so used to speaking the truth in love together. That's a vibrant church, brothers and sisters. And it's it's God's aim for us. He started doing it among us. We're not starting from ground zero. And yet there is so much before us to do as we speak the truth in love to one another. Final thought. If having conversations like that sounds intimidating to you, if you don't know that you could go up to another believer and either ask them a question or start a conversation about speaking about Jesus to one another, 
I would just encourage you to, to pull one of the, the elders aside and talk to them. Shoot us an email, give us a phone call. Our role is that we are a gift given to you to equip you for this very purpose. And so if you don't feel equipped, if you don't feel like you could do that, if you feel intimidated by speaking the truth and love to one another, we would love to talk with you, pray with you, help you through that so that you and every member here are equipped to build one another up in the Lord. That's how God wants to build his church right here at Providence Church in 2022. Let's pray together now. Lord, I thank you that when we think about your church being built and the gates of hell not being able to stand or prevail against it, Lord, we don't have to get overly creative. We don't have to turn to our own ingenuity. You have plainly revealed to us how this is to happen. And it can be so simple. God, I pray that in this year, in 2022, we would embrace the call to speak the truth about Jesus to one another in ways that perhaps we're not doing. That we would grow in being people who just broadcast the gospel not in ways that force it down people's throats, but just because this is who we are. We are people changed by the cross of Christ. We are people captivated by Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our King, and we want to live for Him more than anything else. Lord, we can't fabricate this. We can't make it happen. It's not some well-oiled machine. We need Your Spirit to be among us, to be prompting us in these conversations to be filling us with love for you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that. Would you build your church here in the world? Would you build it in Pittsburgh? Would you build it here at Providence Church? And use all of us to do this, we pray. Lord, as we, as we turn our attention now to a time of confession and supplication, asking you to move. God, I pray that you would hear our our prayers through the blood of Jesus Christ and sanctified through him.